Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team, for leading us to the King today. And you can begin to turn to John 15. We're, uh, we're working our way through the Gospel of John. Uh, it's exciting to look at a story, an eyewitness account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's what the Gospels are. The first four books of your New Testament, the second half of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different perspectives on the birth of Jesus, his life, his teachings, his actions, his person, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. And we get to hear it through John's eyes and through his words who Jesus is and what he's all about. And so I, I, I pray that you're preparing your heart today as we get into John 15 to hear some more of Jesus' teaching there. I want to just highlight a couple things in your bulletin so you don't miss any of the, any of the excitement that's happening around the Way Church. Um, there's a couple of inserts in there. One is a reminder to be praying for the team heading up to South Dakota next week. To uh, We're going to send them off a week from today. They're going from Pine Ridge Elementary up to Pine Ridge Reservation, a little further away, up in, up in South Dakota, but to be um, bringing uh, the light and salt of, G- of Jesus to that place, that part of our, of our uh, region here. And so be praying for them. There's also opportunities to give if, if you'd like to help be a part of that team. So take a, look of, uh, take a look at that insert. And then for the ladies, there's a couple things coming up this month. First of all, there's a new... Uh, Bible study that's starting up on the 10th and 11th. So ladies, there's a couple of options for you. If you've got Tuesday night availability, that Bible study is offered on Tuesday nights or if Wednesday morning is a better time slot, there's two different locations that the same class is taking place. So it gives you a couple of options there. And they're going to be going through the character of God, studying that, so digging into that. And um, you can talk to... um, Well, there's some information there, phone numbers of people you can call. Uh, we've probably, I know my wife is involved in that leadership team, Tina as well. Raise your hand if you're involved with ladies' ministries just so they know who to, who to track down, okay? That's who you find out if you need some more information about the ladies' uh, Bible study that's starting up. And then also a one-day ladies' retreat coming up at the end of September, so you don't want to miss that on Saturday the 28th. Take a look at, at, the, uh, at the information there and get signed up for that. All right. We are going to be now turning to John 15. And this uh, last week, Larry brought a, a great word from the Lord looking at the seven I am statements in John's gospel. So there's seven times in John where Jesus says, I am, fill in the blank, right? You know, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the gate. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Uh, I am the light of the world. I'm going to miss some here because I'm going off of memory. You'll have to look up the rest of them. But the one we're looking at today is that Jesus says, I am the true vine. Okay? So let's read here and and see what that's all about. How many of you have a a vineyard uh, at at your home? None of us. Okay? How many of you have ever been to a vineyard? You've been over to Palisade or you've taken a tour somewhere and, and seen, so, so you can kind of get your head around a little bit the, this vineyard metaphor. For the, for the first century readers of John's gospel, it was very familiar. They had all been on the vineyard tour. They could look and see what, what does a vineyard look like? What is it to tend vines? How do you produce grapes that are productive, that are fruitful, right? You don't just want a bunch of foliage and no fruit. You want to get some grapes at harvest time. And so a lot of the metaphors that we'll see here, we're going to have to draw on some knowledge of tours that we've taken or things that we've seen documentaries on or maybe dig in a little deeper so we can really find out what is Jesus saying when he says, I am the true vine. But let's hear what he says now. I am the true vine 
and my father is the vine dresser, or your, your version may say the gardener or the farmer. Okay? My, my father is the one who tends the vineyard. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now this, this imagery of, of a vine that uh, is connected to Jesus, um, this is kind of a new, a new twist on something that is familiar. It's a, a, a story that would resonate with those who had, who had pulled out their pocket testament, but it, you know, nowadays, how, how many of you have a pocket New Testament? Anybody have those little ones that the Gideons will hand out? Okay, I, I suppose everybody's gone digital today. But anyway, back in the old school, if you're an old bald guy like me, you'd get these pocket New Testaments that you could just carry around literally in your pocket and have God's word with you from Matthew through Revelation, uh, and it was thin and, and, and easy to transport. Well, for the readers of John's gospel, the New Testament had not been written yet. Their pocket testament would have been the Old Testament books. And it came on big scrolls and didn't really fit in your pocket that well. But when they're hearing the metaphor of the vine, that is not unfamiliar to them. There's many passages in the Old Testament that would tie Israel to the vine of God that God is the life source, that God is the one who has chosen them and, and nourishes them and, and, and provides the nourishment that they need to thrive. One example, and you can write this in your notes if you're following along in your bulletin there, look it up yourself later, but Psalm 80 would be a great example of that vine metaphor from the Old Testament. I'll read a couple verses for you to give you a taste of it. Psalm 80, verse seven, restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. And for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. In the Old Testament, the vine was Israel. The vine was uh, to be a blessing to the nations. The promises that God gave way back in Genesis 12 and elsewhere in Genesis to Abraham, he said, Abraham, I got some good news for you. There's some good things coming in your life and in your family. There's blessing in store for you. I'm going to expand your territory. I'm going to bless you with many offspring like the sand of the seashore and the stars in the heaven. I'm going to give you a land to dwell in. But there was a, a bigger plan than that that God spoke to Abraham. He said, not, it's not just so that you can soak in that blessing. He said to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so God's heart was always blessing for the nations, blessing for every tongue, tribe, and nation, every skin color, every race, every background, every part of the globe. God has a redemption plan in mind that began with Israel. And he said, sin has come in and broken my good plan. 
the God who in Genesis 1 and 2 created each day of creation. Let there be light. And he saw the light and he said, it is good. Let there, be, uh, let there be land, let there be sea, let there be fish, let there be birds, animals, plants. And at each day of creation, each stage, he said, it is good. And then he created man, male and female, in his image. He said, it is very good. So that good creator God who created everything and he had a good plan in mind, that plan got messed up in Genesis 3 when we chose self rather than God, when we chose sin rather than submission to him. When we chose to make ourselves the God's lowercase g instead of honoring him as the one true God. And then Genesis 4 all the way through Revelation 22 is the story of God's redemption plan to bring us back to him, to his good plan, his good story of love for us that we're going to see at the end of time when he comes to really establish his kingdom once and for all. And really the decisive moment is Jesus stepping into human history. That's what we're reading about today. So in the Old Testament, the vine, Israel, was to be a fruitful source of God's blessing in the world. Not just to receive blessing and nourishment like, man, am I ever glad that I'm a vine with really good manure around my roots. I can make lots of leaves now. No, it it was to bear fruit fruit that would bring blessing to all the nations that would be a part of God's redemption plan. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, that's a theme that we've already seen in John. That what Israel accomplished to some degree, what Israel failed to fully realize, Jesus replaces Israel as the true son who's faithful to the end, as the true vine, as the true light, he actually accomplishes what Israel had set out to do in God's name. Jesus is the one through whom all the nations are blessed. Jesus is the one through whom God's redemption plan is finally realized. Jesus comes in and he says, I am the true vine. Tying into some of those stories that they would know from reading their pocket testament, there on their scrolls as they read back through the Psalms and other portions that would refer to Israel as the vine. But now there's some new imagery here. God himself is the farmer. Well, we saw that in Psalm 80 as well. He's the gardener. He's the vine dresser. It's a, a reminder that we've seen here already in John of the one to whom all glory and authority really belongs, right? We get confused at times about thinking that, you know, there, there's a human, usually the guy I'm looking at in the mirror, has some authority in in and of himself, right? Or maybe someone else that we respect. Oh man, they are glorious. They are authoritative. And there's a reminder over and again, there's only one who is glorious. There's only one who has all authority. Any other glory or authority that appears is really delegated authority from him. And he gives that to us. When he put Adam and Eve in the garden, he instructed them to have dominion. Well, what does that mean? It actually means to reflect the king to the things that he owns that that really belong to him. He's the creator. It's his domain. When the king puts you in charge of a region, you shouldn't be confused into thinking, I get to wear the crown now and sit on the throne. It's to represent the king to his kingdom, right? And so all authority and glory belongs to him. Now he's in the garden And what's he doing there? Well, he's always working for his own glory. Is that arrogant? 
Uh, how many of you would say that if uh, another human in this room was always working for his or her own glory, that would be arrogance, right? You'd have a problem with that, okay? Well, when God does it, it's not inappropriate at all because he's the only one who is glorious. You want God to work for his glory. That's the only way the universe works correctly. If he is glorious, then he should work for his own glory, and we should as well. And so we come as vines in the vineyard connected to Jesus, submitting ourselves to the farmer who's walking through saying, I want some fruitful plants growing here, some vines in my garden that aren't just cranking out leaves, but there's some fruit at harvest time. And so he's, he's working for his own glory. And it's a beautiful picture of the relationship between the Father and the Son. We're getting a, a good picture of the mystery of the Trinity here. God is always working for his glory. And guess what? Jesus is always working for the glory of God. Jesus is always submitting to the authority of God. He's not coming to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father. And as he does that, Philippians 2 tells us, what does God do? He receives that glory that the Son gives to him, and then he exalts Jesus and gives him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Savior. And that's the relationship that continues since before time began, in the present, and for as long as eternity lasts, eternally, that relationship between father and son. That relationship, as you look at that, as you dwell on that, as you contemplate that, that's the basis for our relationship with Jesus and with one another. And he's going to get there a little bit later in chapter 15. What about this idea of bearing fruit? You know, really, that's the only measure of flourishing if you're a plant. I have a, a really great garden going this year. Despite the snow well into May, despite the hailstones, May, June, July, and August, um, man, I've got this, I have tomato plants that are just going nuts, and I've been like, you know, there's, I gave up on the gigantic cages, now there's like, you know, wires and lines and stuff going everywhere, and I've got like pumpkin seeds that grew out of my compost pile, and they're crawling all over the place, so I got, it's crazy, but let me tell you, my tomato plants are super impressive. Not a lot of tomatoes on them. I'm going to have to talk to Bill, our master gardener here later, and get some points because, pointers because um, I got a lot of leaves and a lot of pretty yellow flowers, but it's September, and there's not a lot of red tomatoes and not a lot of green tomatoes on there yet. I'm doing something wrong, right? You know, the measure of an effective garden and a gardener is that you get some fruit, at harvest time. Not that, wow, man, that guy's got some gigantic green tomato plants that are about to freeze to death any day now. <laughs> but that there's some, you know, some, probably, this is probably Bill and Lisa's tomatoes here, I'm guessing, because they, they know how to do it, that are sitting over the coffee pot. And so, you know, there's been some, there's been a gardener who's been tending the garden, and he knows what he's doing. I don't know what I'm doing, apparently. Just <laughs> stay away from it, Okay. <clears throat> So I've got this garden jungle, and I'm, I'm waiting for tomatoes. I'm hoping for hot weather in September. I'm praying, God, bring the harvest. I can't do it, right? 
I've been out there threatening the vines and you know, coercing them, cajoling them, and it's still not producing fruit. Well, that gardener, as he's looking at us, he's, he's, he's feeling the way I am. Like, man, it's awesome. You've been coming to church. You've been reading your Bible. You've been spending time in prayer. Let, let's crank out some fruit, right? Not just a bunch of green leaves and little yellow flowers. What's the fruit that's being produced? And as he has that intention and that mind, he's coming and he's doing some pruning. Pruning, if you're a plant, is not super fun. When the gardener comes, he's like, you know, we've got some extra suckers that are just growing straight up and they're depleting the energy in, and the nutrients in here that could be producing fruit or flowers. We're going to just hack those off. And you're like, no, that's going to hurt. It's going to cut. It's going to leave a, a wound. But in the end, there's something beautiful and good that's coming, that's in store. And so as that gardener is coming with the pruning shears, it's with the intention here at the end of verse 2 that you may bear more fruit. Because really, ultimately, if you are a plant, the real joy is look at the fruit I have produced. Look at that cluster of grapes. Look at those juicy tomatoes that people are going to just bite into. And it's awesome. And you take pride in that. And as Christians, as believers, it's the fruit that we produce that brings us the most joy, even though it's really hard, even though there's pruning required even though there's some difficulty and struggle and challenges along the way. Uh, in Minnesota, before we moved here, we had a, a, a beautiful uh, hedge of lilacs, all different colors, dark purple, light purple, white, and pink, right, right in a row. But, you know, again, I'm not the master gardener, so I let those suckers get way too big until they started not being super uh, beautiful anymore, and my mom had to come and tell me you gotta, you got to start hacking those, baby, you know, causing some pain to those lilac trees. I had like, you know, big woody uh, sections that were that big around, just solid wood. And, and if there were any lilacs, we couldn't see them because all we could see is these branches down below and the bottoms of some leaves way up high. And so her instruction was, uh, with those mature lilacs, cut out one-third of the oldest branches every spring right after they're done flowering and that'll force that tree to take all of that potential that's in the root system and send up some new growth. But you're not just hacking it off at ground level. You'll still have some of those mature ones until three years from now. Now you're going to have a nice height tree that's bushy and, and full of flowers that are giving fragrance and beauty to the neighborhood. And you're uh, bringing them in the house and, and having that fragrance in there. And it worked. So there was some cutting that was required. There was pruning that was required in order to achieve something even more beautiful, something more uh, in plan with God's design. Not fun along the way to be pruned. And now there's a play on words in, in this last verse that may seem uh, a, little, a little out of place here. We're talking about pruning, gardening, tending. And then all of a sudden in verse 3, G Jesus drops this one in as he's speaking to his disciples that are there with him during this story and to his disciples in this room today. He says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. We miss the, the, the uh, play on words because we don't speak Greek, but I'll, I'll give it to you today so you know what's going on behind the scenes here. So there's a few words here in verses 2 and 3 when he says, cut off, that's the word ire, 
When he says he prunes, that's kathire. And when he says are clean, that's kathiroi. So there's, a, there's a, a connection there. And what he's saying is, if, if I could kind of re, rephrase this a little bit. So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He cuts, he prunes, he, he, he cuts, right? There's some cutting that's involved there. He cuts off. That it may, uh, th- and then the fruit, that every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so he, he cuts that. The ones that aren't bearing fruit, he cuts off. Those that are bearing fruit, he cuts in a way that produces more fruit. And then he says, you are already clean. You're already pruned. You're already, you've already been cut in a way that is gonna achieve what I've just been talking about in verse two. And how does that happen? Well, he's saying, disciples, you're starting out already as fruitful branches connected to the vine because you're here hearing my words today. You're in my presence. You're remaining in me. You're connected to the vine, the only source of truth, the only way that you can actually flourish in this life as humans and this life as followers of Jesus. You're already there. Okay? There's, there's no need for pruning or, or removing or cutting off right now because you're here in my presence, connected to the vine. You've already been pruned. You're ready to start producing fruit. The word there that he mentions, why are you already pruned and clean? Verse three, because of the word that I have spoken to you. That, that word, the word, Logos has come up in John over and over again. John 1.1 starts out that way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word is a way that Jesus refers to himself. And so as Jesus says, uh, you're already pruned and clean and prepared to bear fruit because of the Word that I have spoken to you, that's a whole package deal that is everything that's been happening in John. It's what Jesus says. That's his word. We saw that in 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. The things that Jesus says, his his words, his literal instructions, his teaching is a part of the word that prunes you and prepares you to bear fruit. It's what Jesus does. We saw that in chapter 14, verses 11 through 12 as Jesus is speaking of the works that he's done. And he says, have genuine faith. If not for my teaching, at least believe on account of the works themselves, the actions of Jesus. The things that Jesus does are a part of the word that prepares you to be pruned and fruitful. It's who Jesus is. We saw at the beginning of John 1. In the beginning was the word. So in the teachings of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, the person of Jesus himself, that is the word that cleanses you, prunes you, cuts you where it's needed, and shapes you and forms you so that you can be fruitful, remaining in him, abiding in him. Let's continue on in verse four. My version says, abide in me. How about you in verse four? Does, how many, how, does someone have uh, remain? Are there any other words that you've got? Remain, abide, anything else there? Live, maybe one. So the word abide is not a common word in in my vocabulary, but it kind of has those two ideas of remain and live held together. And and if you think of of a vine and a branch with a root system and all that goes with that, 
that's the, that's the metaphor, the idea that Jesus is continuing to build on. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Man, there's some awesome promises in there that I hope you're grabbing a hold of. It's not just that you remain in Jesus, that you abide in him. He promises to abide in you, to remain in you. He's not going to leave you like a branch cut off and laying over there unproductive. So it's not, it's not all on you. I, ho- I hope you, you see the hope that's in here. It's going to get even better than this. This isn't one of those Sundays where the preacher has to apologize and go, you know, this isn't my words. It's in the Bible. I'm sorry that I'm smashing you here today. This is an awesome chapter of the Bible reminding us of the love that we have in him, the joy that we have in him, that he remains in us, that he produces fruit in our lives. And man, there's a great promise right there that Jesus lives in you and that's the the source of your fruitfulness. Uh, You know, by implication, there is no fruitfulness apart from him. You know, there's no, like if you took an ethics class at a secular university around here, they'll put ideas in your head like the good, which is basically whatever you define that to be, you know, and, and just kind of pursue that, whatever nebulous definition of the good is, that you have, Jesus is saying you ain't gonna find nothing good apart from the vine. If there is a creator God who has shaped the world by his hands, by his voice, spoken it into being, if all things are to bring glory to him, how do you think you're gonna find the good anywhere apart from him? You're like a branch laying over there disconnected from the vine. There is no fruitfulness, there's no life, There's no nourishment, there's no satisfaction, there's no joy that lasts apart from him. Remain in him, abide in him. That fruit, what is that fruit in verse seven? Well, we get get some clues here at the beginning, but that keeps coming up over and over again in this chapter. Fruit, and there's different meanings that it expands and grows to fill in the details on that. One of the things that we see here in verse seven is, That fruit comes through effective prayer in Jesus' name. He says, ask whatever you wish. There's prayer that's a part of bringing forth that fruit. Now, don't don't misinterpret that verse into thinking, I can get God to do whatever I want him to do now. Okay, Because again, who's the glorious one? Who's the one who is is worthy of all authority and power? Who's the king? Is it you? You know, don't get confused and and distort this into saying something that it's not. He is the glorious one. He is the king. All authority belongs to him. When you're abiding in him and remaining in him and his love is coursing through your veins and your roots are connected to him and you're bearing fruit, you're not going to ask for things that are contrary to what his word is, his person, his 
teaching and his actions. In fact, you'll be asking and praying in his name exactly in accord with who he is, what he says, and what he does. And of course, your prayers are going to be answered as you remain connected to him and you're, you're praying the heart of God. You're saying, God, bring a blessing to the nations and use me to accomplish that. Lord, empower me as your witness by your Holy Spirit to testify of Jesus. Lord, bring the fruit of the Spirit into my life. Give the gifts of the Spirit to my church. Make us salt and light. Lord, bless my family so that we can be a blessing. As you're praying God's word, he's going to answer those prayers. If you're saying, God, give me a new beamer, I'm not so sure that that's in accord with his will, so you may, be, you may be just kind of repeating that prayer over and over again because you're like a branch laying over there thinking of your own self-interest. But as you come to him and pray his heart and you're remaining in him, then whatever you ask, it will be done because you're connected to the vine and you're remaining in him, bringing glory to him. That fruit, it's connected with the glory of God, verse 8. It's connected with following Jesus. This is how we prove to be his disciples, also in verse 8. We'll see a little bit later in verse 9. The fruit is walking in Jesus' love. It's in obeying Jesus' commandments, verse 10. And then finally, verse 11, it's in being filled with Jesus' joy. That's the fruit that he's talking about here, that as we abide in him, as we remain in him, we will bear much fruit. And the question today for you and I to apply personally, am I fruitful or am I dead wood? That that may, may, I, I promise to not step on your toes, I think I just did. But really to take take a self inventory and say, am I like that old growth lilac that's really not doing much anymore and I need to submit to the pruning shears and say, God, make me the one-third this year that gets cut off down to ground level because I need some fresh green shoots coming up in my life. I want to flower and blossom and be fragrant. And if it's a vine, I want to produce some grapes at harvest time. And no matter how much it hurts, Lord, I submit to you. I don't want to be dead wood. Bring the pruning shears, gardener, and do your work in my heart. I, I hope that you'll, you will pray that today and submit to him. As painful as it is when he comes, there's something good in store when we submit to him and allow him to shape us and to let his teaching, his actions, his person, the person of Jesus, course through us and bring life and blessing to others through us. Let's continue on in verse 9. More, more on the fruit, on, on how does this work. And now he's kind of set the vine and the fruit metaphor aside, but he's really building on the same themes here in verse nine. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. There it is. There's that relationship that has existed forever between God the Father and Jesus. It's the basis of our relationship with Jesus and with one another. Think about how The Father has loved Jesus. And he's giving us a promise and saying, that's the same way I love you. Personalize that. Put your name in there. That's not just a general generic like blanket. That's how I have loved humans in general. Personalize it. Put your name in there and hear Jesus saying that to you. 
as the Father has loved me, so I love you, Sergio. Phyllis, Jeff, he's looking you in the eyes and saying, I love you, Lyndall, and I know you, and I'm, I'm encouraging you to abide in my love, to live in that. There's some past tense in here, some, some, uh, some completed action words. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. It's done, it's completed, it's finished. We try to t- train our kids on what is love because it's confusing in our, in our world, right? You know, you watch enough movies, you're gonna have no idea what love is. Yeah, I, I don't love you anymore. Well, you, by definition, that, that sentence doesn't make any sense if you actually know what love is. Love is, is really saying, I put you first. And that'd be a good practice for you as parents to at times work that in when, when you're tucking your kids in at night and saying, I love you, to, to remind them. And when you say, I love you, it means I put you first. I think that's a, that's a real simple way for us to understand this. And Jesus is inviting us to receive and reflect that kind of love, to abide in that kind of love that's other-focused, it's completed, it's finished, it's a done deal. Jesus did it on the cross. And that cross should be a reminder to us of that ultimate love. And Jesus says, well, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That connection between commandments and love, we've already seen that. We covered that quite a bit last week, so I won't dig into that a whole lot other than to remind you of 1421. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to me, or he will... We will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. That connection between commandments and love that we explored last week. And sometimes we think those are our polar opposites, right? Like, well, if you love me, you won't tell me to do stuff. And yet we can all think of times and examples where it was really out of love that we gave a command to our children or as kids ourselves, our parents gave instructions and commandments for our protection, our safety. It was a motivation of love. That's God's heart. He's got a bigger perspective on our lives than we do. And he's saying there is a connection between commandments and love. And as you walk in that, you will remain in his love. It's not a treachery. It's not a burden. But instead, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is not a joy on my terms apart from the obedience and abiding in love. Right? You know, like this is just what I've come up with, I've made up, that that I I think I'm going to find joy and satisfaction down this path. Because there is no fruitfulness, there is no flourishing apart of remaining and abiding in Jesus. If you want joy and you're looking in lots of different places for that. Maybe if I just binge watch one more Netflix series, I'll find that deep lasting satisfaction I've been craving. It doesn't matter how many episodes they come out with, it's not gonna be down that path. 
Maybe if I can just find the right substance to inject, inhale, imbibe, it will give me that lasting joy and satisfaction that I've been desiring. You'll never find it. It doesn't exist. There's no chemical tweak that you can do and adjust that's going to give you that joy that you're craving. Maybe if I can just find that person that will be my soulmate, I'll find that joy I've been wanting. She ain't out there. He doesn't exist. Prince Charming is a myth. As my wife can testify. (laughs) That joy is not going to be found in any relationship with any human. If you want joy, there's one place to find it. Connect to the vine. Abide in him. Receive the love that Jesus offers to you. And all of a sudden, all those other things that used to tantalize you and entice you are going to just fade to the background. You're going to go, there there was never any fruit down any of those paths. It was all in Jesus alone. And my spouse could never produce that fruit of joy within me. And my career, and my bank account, and my possessions, and my education, and all those aspirations, the fun, the vacations, all that stuff, it, it, it never leaves a lasting satisfaction and joy. My kids, my dreams for them, Even that leaves you empty in the end. And it doesn't mean that any of these things are are not good and that there isn't ways that God brings joy through them. But that's not the source of our joy. That's not the lasting place. Jesus has now brought up my joy here in verse 11. This is following my peace in chapter 14, my love earlier here in 15. We're getting a glimpse of what Paul is going to lay out in Galatians 5. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those are the fruits that are produced in a spiritual sense, but in a a real sense in the lives of those who abide in the vine. Okay, so it's it's the things that are mentioned here in John. There's other contexts here that we can look at to find out what is the fruit that comes as you abide in him. Then Jesus gives a commandment. Verse 12, did you know there's commandments in your New Testament? We were looking in, in, in the youth Sunday school class, fire, at Exodus 20 today, looking at the Ten Commandments from the Old Testament. And a lot of times we, in the New Testament now, we like to think, well, yeah, I'm so glad there's no more commandments. Bad news for you. There's a commandment right here in the middle of the New Testament today, and here's what it is. Jesus gives a commandment. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Okay, that, that requires some unpacking, right? Because if, if love is what Hollywood says, you know, that you have some tingly feelings occasionally. Uh, is, that how, is that what Jesus experienced on the cross as he was suffering and dying for your sins? Was it some emotional kind of a love that he had? I just, I don't see it. How did Jesus love you? Well, he, he stepped from heaven into earth. He was tempted in every way like as we are, yet without sin. He left his home in glory at the Father's right hand, that place of honor, to come down and, and live the human existence. He walked dusty roads. 
He washed feet of his stinky disciples. He served. He came not to be served, but to serve. And he gave his life as a ransom, to name a few. Those are the ways that Jesus loved. And now he gives a commandment. As I have loved you, love one another. Look around the room here. This is our mission. This is our commission from the king saying, you see that person that's a little hard to love? Do it anyway. Follow my example. Serve them. Put them first. Die to self. Love them. And then he builds on that. He says, now, now he says here in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. That word friends is one of those Greek words for love that we've been looking at this year as a congregation. We're looking at the four loves, kind of taking one per quarter. So we looked at storge back in, in the early spring, affection. How do we grow in Christian affection? How do we enjoy time together in that safe place where there's warmth and encouragement in the body? The second one we looked at is this word that's used right here. Uh, our, our city in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, is from this Greek word phileo. And so it's, it's a friendship kind of love. It's that camaraderie. It's when two people stand together looking at the same truth and going, you see the same thing I do? You believe it? You, you, I, thought, I thought I was the only one with this perspective. You see Jesus as the one true king? You're, you're another branch connected to the vine? It's that sort of friendship love. Next, in October, we're going to be looking at eros, which is that intimacy kind of love that's taught in God's word. It'll give us some practical things in our marriages or those that are preparing for that someday. But here, Jesus, when he says, you are my friends, he's saying, you are one that I love in that friendship way. You are those that I love. You are the ones that I love. You're my friends in that sense of the word. Not just my buddy, my partner. You are the beloved. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for those he loves with that friendship phileo kind of love. And then he says, you are my friends, my beloved, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Your status, it's no longer just a slave who follows the master. Jesus is drawing you close to himself, just as the apostle John, the author of this book, refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, the one who Jesus loves. That was his identity that he took upon himself. You are encouraged to take that upon yourself as well. Not just I'm the slave of God, I'm the servant who has to do what he commands, but to look at yourself and say, I am the one that Jesus loves. I'm beloved of the Father. I'm a friend of God. And then to, to finish out that encouragement, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. 
Now, your status as a branch connected to the vine should not produce arrogance in you. Like, look how cool I am. I'm connected to the vine. I'm not one of those dead branches cut off and laying over there in the burn pile. Uh, Look at the fruit that I've got. I'm something else. Instead, your status as the beloved, as the vine abiding in the branch, what it should produce instead of arrogance in you is humility and thankfulness and a recognition that, you know, this has nothing to do with me. It wasn't because I'm so cool that, you know, and I worked my way up to God or I I did something on my own strength. It was that God chose you and he pulled you out of the mire and the muck and the meaningless, hopeless, peaceless, joyless, loveless world that you were once a part of. It's because he's so awesome and glorious and that should make you thankful and joyful and humble as you come to him and and experience that love and that joy and peace that he promises us in these chapters and that status as the beloved. And as you come to him and say, I'm your friend, I'm the chosen one. Thank you that you've chosen me, that you've redeemed my life, that there's now fruitfulness, that there's joy that remains. But I hope you notice this last little tidbit here in what Jesus is saying. That there is a mission that you're on. There's a kingdom mission as a part of this. He says, I have appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Okay, what have we just been seeing about abiding and remaining in this chapter, right? It's the branches, the fruit-producing branches are the ones that are abiding. And Jesus is saying part of your fruit, and we're seeing another aspect of fruit, Fruit is not just the glory of God. Fruit is not just the love and the joy and the peace that Jesus offers. There is a fruit that you and I produce as believers that is missional. It's a kind of fruit that will itself abide. This is talking about evangelism right here. Testifying of God pointing to Jesus And there's a promise that as we are fruitful as believers, that good news is going to go viral. And there's going to be more branches grafted into the vine that are going to be drawing on the life source of Jesus and growing and producing fruit themselves. There's a promise that as we walk and abide in his love and his joy, you and I will produce fruit that will abide itself and grow and continue on. There's a kingdom mission as we receive and reflect Jesus' love of true converts who are in the vine that will be a part of the the fruit that we produce. I hope that gives you some excitement and a little bit of feeling of pressure, right? That Jesus actually wants to use you to fulfill his kingdom mission. Here's how he says it in Acts chapter one. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses here at home in Jerusalem, around our region in Judea, in the neighboring area of Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth when the Holy Spirit empowers you and the life blood of Jesus courses through you, the outcome will be kingdom mission accomplished through you. And that fruit will abide because it's God choosing and calling and working and pruning so that there's fruit 
that comes through your, your life and through my life as followers of Jesus. All of this should give you hope for the last part of our story here in chapter 15, which is not such a happy ending. Okay, so hang on to the peace, the love, the joy, the fruitfulness, because now you got the good news before the bad news, and this is what we end with today. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Okay, the world, what does that mean? Um, one, of the, one of the commentators describes the world in John's gospel as, as this simple definition. It's the created moral order in active rebellion against God. I'll say it once more. This is D.A. Carson. The world in John's gospel is the created moral order in active rebellion against God. Now, that, that world... John 3.16 tells us God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son into the world. Not to condemn, but to bring salvation, to bring hope. That was his, that was his plan as he looks at the world that's in, it's, it's his creation, but it's an act of rebellion against him. He's motivated to love and to bring salvation and redemption to that reality. But what happened as Jesus came? Well, Jesus tells us here in, in uh, chapter, verse 18 and following that the world rejected, hated Jesus who came to bring redemption and love and hope and yet the world says, no, we're going to continue in rebellion. We don't want to acknowledge you as the king. That would mean submitting to you. That would mean doing things your way. I want to do it my way. What's going to happen if you and I who were in the world are called by Jesus, chosen by him to still stay in the world, but to remove that moral, rebellious order, actively pushing God away, and we're rejecting that whole way of life, and now we're coming, submitting to him and saying, I'm no longer the king, you are. I'm no longer the master of my own destiny, I yield to you. It's no longer about my agenda, my plan, my definition of what joy is. I now submit to your commandments. What's the world going to do to you when you go in that direction? Well, if they're still actively rebelling to God, they're not going to be real happy about that move in your life. And you might have some real practical ways that this happens in your own family, at work, in your neighborhood, in your school. Well, just who do you think you are? Holier than thou, Jesus freak. Who do you think you are? And to come to that place of humility and say, well, I'm, I'm nothing apart from him. It's God doing his work in me. Let me introduce you to the king. Let me introduce you to the source of joy and love and peace. You can have it too. You can tap into the vine just as I have. But Jesus is warning us and cautioning us and reminding us that there will be trouble and hardship in the path of following him. This is part of the fruit. Okay? If you're looking at your vine 
and there's not a, a part of your grape cluster that is rejection from the world around you, then, then caution. You're on dangerous ground. If you're looking at your life and going, yeah, yeah, the world pretty much thinks I'm awesome. The world just accepts me and, and, and I just fit right in and blend in. One, Jesus is warning and saying, caution, if the world loves you, you are on very dangerous ground. Because those who are in active rebellion against God's will will not love those who are walking faithfully with the one true king, Jesus. And so there, that, there's, that's another fruit measure. There should be hatred and rejection from the world coming your way. Yay! Just what I wanted to hear on a Sunday morning, right? Remain in Jesus, the true vine. And that's where your source of strength is to help you endure the hardships that come in this life. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. Um, Anyone who's been reading along in John's Gospel remember when Jesus said that? little trivia question. Hint, it was in chapter 13. There was a bowl and towel and basin and water involved. Some stinky feet. And Jesus got down on his hands and knees at the Passover celebration with his disciples. And he shocked them by taking that menial position of a servant, the lowest servant position, washing the feet of these travelers who had dusty feet from the day's journey. And then at the end of that, he said, now you call me Lord and teacher, and you're right, because that's what I am. And if I, your Lord and teacher, have done this, I've done it as an example for you that you will do the same. And he said this exact quote there in chapter 13. A servant is not greater than his master. And now Jesus is expanding that. He's saying it's not just that the the humility and the service part of, of the foot washing ceremony, but get ready because the master has faced persecution and suffering and you as his followers should expect the same. This is, this is a part of the Christian life. We've been kind of soft here in the good old U.S. of A., uh, but don't expect that to last. Um, prepare for a time of suffering that is already coming and will intensify. And it's going to help to refine the church. You know, the, the idea of being a casual Christian is just kind of, you know, I'm my own branch disconnected from the vine, but I sprinkle a little bit of Jesus in there now and then. That idea goes away when there's persecution. And it, it causes us to really dig in and root in and say, okay, God, I need the joy and the love and the peace that only you give because this world is a hard place. And our, our brothers and sisters in the Lord in other parts of the world are already experiencing this today. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. I don't think that's a, a snarky comment there that Jesus, in John, there have, it's been a mixed bag. Most people don't keep his word, but there are some who do. And Jesus says, you know, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. The few who actually follow faithfully, not just chasing after the miracles that we saw in John, but those who really put faith in Jesus as he taught that few will respond as you faithfully testify of him as well. So it should give you some hope. You will get the door slammed in your face, 
Nine times out of 10, but that one out of 10 is the one that counts. And that's a fruit that will remain and abide as you testify of Jesus in the world, in those who are actively rebelling against him. God will use you in that life story of someone to bring him or her to Jesus. Jesus continues here in verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 21. All these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That's likely a quote from Psalm 69. So this idea of rejecting the words, the works, the person of Jesus, that's just exactly what the world does. We shouldn't be surprised to face persecution. I mean, that's where we came from in the B.C. days, the before Christ days in our own lives, right? So, you know, if a fellow brother or sister in Christ is not loving you, that's a huge problem. That should cause you a lot of anxiety because Jesus gives a commandment and we got to work it out. But if you're getting persecuted from the world, man, that should surprise you. I mean, that's, that's what happened to Jesus. You should be surprised if you went through a whole week and you're like, man, I, I just skated through that week with no opposition or persecution. Make, make that a wake-up call. Maybe I need to be more bold next week and, and, and produce more fruit and testify of Jesus with a little more urgency and intensity because I haven't been having much persecution coming my way lately. Be that salt and light. And the good news that we're left with here in verse 26, as you face that hatred, as you face that persecution, it's not in your own strength, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. That helper, the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside, the, the promised one, he's here right now to fill you, to empower you, to comfort you, to encourage you, to strengthen you, to send you on mission, to help you as you face persecution, to get ready to suffer in his name. And he's going to give you the power you need to be a witness of Jesus as well, to testify. And so today, I pray that you have a, a deeper resolve to abide in the vine, to look at him, at Jesus as your source of joy, that humility and thankfulness that comes with knowing that he has chosen you, that, that you know, a little bit of excitement about some suffering and persecution that's going to come. Uh, sometimes it's going to be the, the master gardener bringing some pruning that cuts but there's fruit that comes. Sometimes it will be in our world whose hatred toward you is a good sign that you're actually following after Jesus and walking in his footsteps who has deemed you worthy to suffer in his name. And today that the Holy Spirit will give you that hope and joy that Jesus has promised. Can we stand together in his name and I just want to pray for each of you today in whatever part of this chapter that God is speaking to you most clearly 
that you will be uh, open to walking in what he's commanding today. Lord, 